Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Caregiving is a fact of life, which means many families will find themselves in the position of providing care for a loved one. Planning ahead for aging parents' caregiving needs and talking about decisions that may be around the corner is critical and ensures better preparation for caregivers and competent care for their loved ones. My guest today is Dr. Julie Norstrand, adjunct professor at Regis College and founder of an organization called Help My Aging Parents. She will talk about what's involved when preparing for caregiving responsibilities and why ongoing conversations between family members and aging parents are necessary. She'll also discuss caregiving-related issues that may impact aging parents and available community resources to support both aging parents and their caregivers. So welcome, Julie, and thank you for joining me today. Cheryl, thank you so much for inviting me. I have really looked forward to coming here today. Okay. Well, then let's get started and give us some basic information. Based on your experience with this particular topic, who are usually the primary caregivers for older adults? Sure. So generally, the primary caregiver are the adult daughter. And the average age is about 50 years old. And they probably provide anywhere from 20 to 24 hours of care to their loved one, and which is generally not paid. In fact, it's estimated that caregivers provide an, uh, approximately $470 billion in free labor each year. But the challenging part of defining who a caregiver is, is the fact that many, uh, especially in the early stages, don't necessarily see themselves as caregivers. Instead, they feel that what they're doing is just a natural part of being a helpful adult child. However, when you start to see the number of hours that they're putting in, it clear it's very clear that this certainly becomes a second job. And I was wondering also, I heard you say older adults and their children would we also put spouses in this this category of uh, caregivers? Um, because I want to find out about becoming a caregiver and whether that might cause stress. So I'm wondering if if a spouse uh, may also ha- be uh, a caregiver, a primary caregiver, and how does that measure up to say adult children who have to think about caring for their parents? Give us that differentiation. Sure. So, I mean, there's certainly spouses uh, also become caregivers. Often it's uh, the the wife that becomes the caregiver to the husband. And the reason being is that the wife lives longer generally than the husband does, uh, which is why in actual fact amongst people living on their own, the vast majority, especially when you get into the 75 to 80-year-olds, Many of these people are women because they their husband has since uh, deceased. But certainly uh, in terms of stresses and much of what uh, we'll be talking about today is as relevant whether you're talking about the adult daughter caring for her, 
her aging parents or whether it's the spouse caring for their uh, their other significant other. The, the issues are certainly uh, on par. Well, and I know we're going to be talking more about all of the particular issues, but right from the start, as our listeners are thinking about this topic today, are there resources that are available for family members to think about preparing for caregiving responsibilities? What could they know before things start getting a little bit more um, complicated? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, I mean, I always tell people the good news is that there are many resources available for caregivers to start planning. But the bad news is that it does require a lot of digging around. And that can be certainly a problem for caregivers because often many of them don't know where to start. Uh, I've heard many caregivers say to me that early on they didn't know what questions to ask. And this makes complete sense because they are totally new to elder care issues. But in terms of resources, I'd say geriatric care managers are ideal as they can really help you walk through the steps, but they charge for their services. And there are also senior centers or councils on aging, as well as ASAPs, and that's Aging Service Access Points. Uh, There are actually 25 of them throughout Massachusetts. And ASAPs, they have a very comprehensive array of resources that you can call and ask about. By reaching out to senior centers or councils or uh, councils on aging or ASAPs, you can get this information for free. However, you should note that the services that you get, if you should uh, request, for example, a home health aid, you will be required to pay for that out of pocket. And that uh, organization you mentioned in Massachusetts, I know that's where you're talking uh, to us uh, today. Is that a national organization? I think you said ASAP? ASAP, so they're a- aging service access points. They are uh, national. I, all I'm saying is that there are 20 of them throughout Massachusetts. So in each of the states throughout the United States, you have ASAPs throughout each of these states. Thank you for that, Julie. So let's talk about the signs and the situations that may begin to uh, make either a spouse or adult children begin to indicate that that some caregiving might be needed. So mm-hmm. talk about those signs and situations, and then when is the right time to, mm-hmm. to begin thinking more seriously? And that's that's a great question because I've certainly had families come to me and say, you know, when is it appropriate for me to reach out? So what I tell them that that there are several early signs that you can look out for. And these are, for example, such as greater level of forgetfulness, loss of interest or routine and uncertainty or confusion about regular routines. Also, you might start to notice a disheveled or deteriorated appearance, or their inability to maintain the home. And adult children have also told me that they notice that the mail, especially the bills, have started 
building up, and that can be certainly a, a indicator that something's not quite right. But much more concerning signs when action by the family really is required immediately, I would say, includes uh, events such as leaving the stove or the burner on or dents or scratches on the car or sudden weight loss and or notable worsening of mood such as depressive symptoms or increased anxiety. But ultimately, I always encourage all families to step in before problems arise because they can lead to a sudden medical crisis. And so what I'm hearing you say, Julie, is is that it's really important to be proactive rather than reactive uh, when planning for caregiving. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked about a medical crisis. Is there any other uh, factors to take into consideration about uh, that, that situation of being proactive rather than reactive? Well, I think I'm, I often focus uh, on the medical crisis because that's what generally happens to many families, the ones that have not done any planning or if little planning, that what sort of uh, fast forwards them into the caregiving role is that single medical crisis. So, for example, the fall or the stroke or the car crash. Um, And that, as you can well imagine, changes everything very dramatically overnight. And that's why, you know, if you haven't done any planning, it becomes such a challenging uh, experience for you and the family who are going to become involved as caregivers, which is why I focus very much on that medical crisis. And as I had mentioned in my introduction, we talked about having those conversations because obviously all the planning requires people to talk to each other. And so, again, we've been primarily talking about the the adult children or maybe the spouse, but when it really comes to having the conversation with that older family member in, in terms of planning, who is the best person that could start that conversation and, and how does that determine? That, I must admit, is a very hard answer uh, to give uh, because it really can vary so much from family to family. However, however I would say that often the, the person who's going to be doing the primary caregiving, uh, he, which I, is often the adult daughter, uh is often the person who will start this conversation. But I do sometimes advise families to think a little bit about the relationship between you, the adult child, and your parent. And what I'm getting at is that that sort of role reversal can be quite a challenging experience. So what what I'm really saying is imagine the adult child coming to the parent and saying, you know, I'm getting concerned. They may have a specific uh, explanation or reasoning. I I would like to check in and see what help I might be able to start providing. And for that parent who has always been the one in charge, who has always been the provider and the, the one to manage things, you can imagine that role reversal being quite a 
a bitter pill to swallow. So bottom line, I think what what I encourage families to do is to think a little bit about who might be the ideal person to at least get the conversation started. And sometimes it may not be that adult child or even the spouse. It may actually be a friend or it may be the neighbor or the trusted doctor uh, to bring up this challenging topic. And I've certainly heard many cases where um, the family, if they have a good connection with with their loved one's PCP, will ask the PCP, could you please start bringing up, you know, at least start that conversation about have you started thinking about your own future and what needs you should uh, start planning for. Uh, but so the the main thing is I I try to encourage families to really start to to give it some thought about who that ideal person is uh, in terms of uh, reaching out and starting that conversation. And when you said PCP, I know you're talking about the primary care practitioner, correct? Correct. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And you you gave an example already of a suggested opening. Uh, to start the conversation about a loved one's future, and and that was good. I I was thinking as you were talking also about it is a not only a role reversal, but it's kind of a threat maybe in some ways that the parent is beginning to realize. Oh, I'm not quite. This may may change the whole mm-hmm. uh, scenario for me in terms of my independence and that. So talk a little bit more about these so-called suggested openings and that mm-hmm. one can prevent the older adult feeling threatened, but maybe um, accepting of, of what might be inevitable. Mm-hmm. One thing I just want to point out um, that it can go both ways. So it's not necessarily just that the adult child is feeling concerned about how to start the conversation. It can. I've had many cases where older adults have said to me, you know, my children have put me up on a pedestal. They think I can do everything. They think that I'm going to live. I mean, I've literally had this very conversation with an older uh, lady that I was speaking to, and she said, I'm, I'm having such a hard time making my children understand that I'm not going to be around forever and that I may need the help someday. So it's a, it is important to realize that it does go both ways in terms of that challenge of starting this conversation. But if um, in terms of when I've had people ask me, you know, how do I start this conversation? My suggestion is that um, the way to do it is to try and bring up that something that's relevant. So, for example, if your loved one, your parent is still driving, you might want to ask them, how do they feel about driving at night? Uh, that can certainly be an opening question. Also, another scenario might be if they're living in a larger home, you might ask them, how do they feel about the upkeep of the home as well as the ongoing costs? But ultimately, the way to the way the conversation should be brought up, I 
encourage families is by using open-ended questions or by bringing up another family you know that is going through similar issues. And please, please don't ever bring up this challenging conversation by statements such as you must or you need to or you ought to. That really will stop the conversation in its tracks. And and thank you for that. I because again, people can feel very threatened on both ways as as well. And I was also wondering if it's necessary to have more than one conversation. Absolutely, plain and simple. This uh, is because uh, circumstances change for your loved one, as well as for you and your family. So um, their opinions may also change over time. So it's really important to keep that conversation ongoing, to check in, make sure that, you know, have they changed their thoughts or their wishes? Also, their own health changes over time. So just as a as a, a very um, sort of uh, often used example that I use is that the parent may have adamantly been saying, we need to you know, I want to stay in this house for as long as possible. Well, if their health has deteriorated to a point where it's no longer safe, then you may have to rethink that whole idea and whether they move in with you, the adult child, or whether they move into some sort of assisted living, that suddenly may become part of that conversation. So yes, absolutely. It has to be an ongoing conversation. And what I heard you say just a moment ago also is about including the wishes of the older adult when making these caregiving Mm. decisions, as opposed to saying, you will do this, Mm -hmm. or you must do that, or mom, this is really good for you, or dad, you know, you need to really do this. Uh, Talk more about that, why that's so important to consider the viewpoint of that older adult and their wishes rather than ordering people rather than exploring options. So yes, I mean, it really is critical. And the reason why is because by paying attention to what their wishes are, you are much more likely to get their cooperation with your suggested plan of action. And then ultimately, better outcomes for them as well as for you. And in my work with older adults, I always aim to keep them at the center even if they may not necessarily be present at the conversation that I'm having with the family. So the key point is to uphold their wishes, which is a way of supporting their autonomy. Also, you really want to make sure their dignity is valued. In other words, you develop a plan that makes them feel valued, respected, and treated ethically. And finally, I also get the families to make sure that they support their independence as much as possible. And this means that you want to encourage your loved one to do as much as possible for as long as possible. However, with all this said, the overarching theme, however, is to you must ensure their safety and their comfort. Well, and you mentioned it already, so I want you to expand on this. And that's the the factor that um, there might be multiple family members. Um, oftentimes, while well, you've been giving us the explanation that it's the, say, the adult daughter that's the primary caregiver, 
in some circumstances, I imagine there are more than one child or adult child. There's multiple children, and they live different places, and they have different opinions. Plus, there could, I'm assuming that, as you had mentioned before, the physician might be involved or the physical therapist or whoever. So if all of these folks are participating in this conversation and they have differing opinions, how can the caregiving decisions be made? What what do you advise? As you can imagine, uh, so the way that it works for me is I will have a family member reach out to me and they're reaching out because they have concerns. And I'll have that initial conversation just to find out what's going on. And then at that point, I will always say, can we include other family members who may become involved? And there's two reasons for that. And that is because it's far better for me to get a a sort of a, a sense of what's going on from multiple people. And also, very importantly, because I really try and make it so that the plan of action becomes that not everything falls on that one individual primary caregiver. But what we're really getting into here is is, uh, family dynamics. (laughs) And this can be tricky, especially because family members may not always see eye to eye. And this is quite understandable because, for example, in some cases, the parents may have communicated different wishes to different children. And that can be often due to simply having different relationships with them. Also, uh, we are all different and have different priorities, and this can shape our decision-making. But probably the greatest barrier to past com- miscommunications that may have, a, that are things that have occurred in the family from the past that then comes out in this conversation about the, the loved one. Um, therefore, sometimes... Um, This really requires some sorting out. And here I really encourage siblings, if they have differences of of opinion, to really listen and hear each other out. And sometimes just by doing that simple act, uh, misunderstandings can then become uh, clarified. But ultimately my goal when I have different uh, people involved in this conversation is to get the family members to see that their end goal is the same and then try to get them to figure out how to get to that same end goal. That's how I deal with the multiple family members. So, and that can probably, again, as you said earlier, take more than one conversation as well, sometimes Mm -hmm. with the older adult present or parent or relative, sometimes perhaps not. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we are going to take a short break right now. In case you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Julie Norstrand, who is an adjunct professor at Regis College, and she's also founder of an organization called Help My Aging Parents, exactly what we're talking about today. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. We are having an interesting conversation about preparing for caregiving. And we're talking with Dr. Julie Nordstrand, who is uh, an adjunct professor at Regis College. And she's also founder of an organization called Help My Aging Parents. And so, Julie, in the first half of the program, you kind of laid the groundwork of what we need to think about, having conversations, what are issues that might come up. So I'd like to drill down a little bit and talk about some of those issues because uh, it'll help our listeners think about what they need to think about um, if caregiving is necessary. So let's start with health care needs. When, when talking about health care needs, what are major topics to discuss? And in that, in that vein, what professionals might need to be included in the conversation? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to healthcare needs, the main point I emphasize to families is that they need to understand what chronic condition their loved one is living with and who are the specialists who care for each of these chronic conditions. And there are two reasons why you need to know about their chronic conditions. First, often they impact just their daily functioning. And the second reason is because often people need to take medications for these chronic conditions. On average, older adults, 65 and older, take up to eight medications. So if you're going to become involved in the caregiving, you may become part of, you know, making sure that the medications are refilled and knowing why, which medications are being taken. So that's why it's really important to know this. But I mean, ultimately, what the point of under trying to understand their health care needs is that you really ought to get a sense of the trajectory or the future outlook in terms of the chronic conditions that they have so that you have a sense of what they may need going down the line in case, especially if their chronic condition is not managed well. But I also encourage families to find out if their loved one has any emotional challenges, such as depression or anxiety, and or any cognitive or memory difficulties. The, probably the best way to get a sense of their health is to go with them to their next medical checkup. And here you can get a chance to ask questions to the provider. But please, please, before you jump in as the well-meaning, intentioned caregiver, please ask permission to ask questions. Uh, Because as you can imagine, the older parent or the spouse may feel that their sort of level of independence being taken away from them if you start barging, coming in, asking all these questions. But ultimately, um, the great thing about going with them to this medical appointment is that is the opportunity where you can get information about getting your name on something called the HIPAA form. The HIPAA form, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, is a form that the healthcare provider has. And if you, uh, if your loved one, whether it be the spouse or whether it be your parent, signs that form and gives that uh, provider 
permission to communicate with you going forward. That means that you can, as the caregiver, can call up and ask questions. And the provider can then give information about what's going on in terms of their health. So really, it's a great opportunity to inquire about the HIPAA form if you go with your loved one. Um, but to summarize what I've said, I, the, 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 the point about finding out about the, um, the health um, the healthcare needs is that you want to have an understanding of what are their current conditions as well as what are their medications. That, if you have a good sense of what is going on there, that can make your uh, experience and understanding and providing the support and, the, and, and meeting their needs that much easier. I would also want to ask you, Julie, to take it one step further. In the, mm -hmm. in the event that perhaps a loved one also has a terminal illness, uh, what that might mean in terms of you know, hospice care or mm. uh, some other uh, situation which not only may require uh, additional, as I said, hospice care or mm -hmm. uh, something else, but also the emotional aspects that will come into play Absolutely. because of the fact that someone is, is, has a terminal illness. Can you talk a little mm. bit about that? So I actually had a very interesting case with a family about two weeks ago. Um, one of the family members reached out to me and long story cut short, the, indiv the individual, um, an 82-year-old lady, was going to be discharged from the hospital. Uh, and she had multiple chronic conditions. The family weren't really sure about exactly what was going on in terms of her own health. But the, the really tricky part of this uh, imminent release from the hospital was that apparently her PCP had suggested that she would need either palliative care or hospice care. And so it became very confusing and very bewildering for the family to know how to deal with her imminent release. And so that was a classic example of, unfortunately, what happens in many cases is that the family don't really know what's going on. And the grappling of the palliative care, which is really supportive care with, along with uh, continued medical care versus hospice care, which is when you start the supportive medical care but provide comfort care, are two very different trajectories. And it has become a quite a muddied, muddled experience for this family going forward. And as you well point out, the emotional stress has been very challenging for this family. But we're now in the process of communicating with the PCP, the primary care physician, um, to try and better understand what her recommendations are and why. And this will help the families determine is it um, is if it's hospice care, will the nursing, which nursing home will be able to support this hospice care? So um, it's uh, incredibly important 
to have a good sense of what's going on in terms of their healthcare needs. And I would take that another aspect of this possibility of, say, terminal illness, the need for understanding the financial and estate planning issues that they need to be discussed as well, especially if they haven't been. And Mm. should a financial professional join the conversation? Talk a little bit more Mm -hmm. about that aspect of caregiving. Absolutely. So I would say this is probably the aspect of proactive planning, which needs to be tackled first. And that's because the ramifications can be so immense if nothing has been done with estate planning in case your loved one should become unconscious or die. So without an estate plan, any assets go into something called probate. And this is both very costly and time-consuming for the family to settle. So yes, I always ask people if they have sorted out who is the power of attorney, and this is the person who is responsible for following what is dictated in their will. It's also critical to make sure that a healthcare proxy has been chosen, and that's the person who determines what kind of medical interventions a person gets if they cannot speak for themselves. Also knowing their finances and where all the documents are and any passwords is also really key. I usually do not include a financial professional in the conversation unless the family specifically asks for this, but this has yet not happened. Uh, in my circumstances. But I will just point out the family that I mentioned who I uh, worked with a couple of weeks ago, this exact scenario of not knowing exactly where, where and who the power of attorney was and not being totally clear on who the healthcare proxy was very evident right at the beginning of the conversation. It turned out there was a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy in this case, but it required a, some urgent scrambling on everyone's part to just narrow down exactly who that was. So if you think about it with this, this sort of proactive planning approach, if you can sort of prevent those stressful experiences, this whole transition as your loved one ages whether you be your spouse or whether it be your um, older parent, can really be so much less stressful if you know what's going on. I always say that knowledge is power. Well, and now I wanted to step back a little bit. If a person, uh, an older adult, is is not terminally ill but has some difficulties uh, living uh, alone, Let's talk a little bit about where to live. What mm. factors should be considered? Um, again, who else should participate in the discussion, the conversation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, in the vast majority of cases, um, people want to remain in their own home for as long as possible. I think the research did, uh, says somewhere between 80 to 90% of older people want to remain in their own home, which makes complete sense. You've uh, lived in your own home maybe 30 to 40 years. You know your neighborhood. It makes complete sense that you want to stay there. Uh, So I always encourage the families to support this. But in order for it to be this 
to be a feasible scenario, it is really important to make sure that the living situation is really assessed. And what I mean by that is assessed for its safety. Um, especially if you're dealing with a loved one who is at risk for falls. Um, so in these scenarios, what you really want to make sure that you remove any tripping hazards such as loose rugs or any wires that may be lying around. And there are certainly many other modifications that can be done to the home to make it more elder-friendly. And there are actually companies out there called Certified Aging Place Specialists, also known as CAPS. And these uh, people, will they'll come out to your home and they will give recommendations for what uh, modifications they would recommend. And you listeners should also know that uh, sometimes Medicare will cover some of these costs. But ultimately, it's really important um, that uh, things that need to be considered, whether a loved one should be continues to stay in their own home is one, is it safe for them to do so, even with some modifications done to the home? And second point is, if they're feeling lonely or isolated, and that last point is really important, sometimes if your loved one is living alone, uh, they can they can be quite lonely and isolated. So instead, you know, I always encourage the family to con consider a senior residential setting, such as independent living. And these can be fantastic uh, um, opportunities because then this uh, person who is instead living on their own will be uh, in a setting where there's many other people and they will have uh, communication and and experience for a connection with other people on a on a day, on a regular basis. But of course, the costs of long term care, uh, residential care, can can be very expensive, and that certainly needs to be taken into account for families. The other thing that I was thinking about is if they decide to stay in their own home, if that seems to be the best choice, are there routine activities that the caregiver might need to think about uh, just to make sure that those don't fall by the wayside if a person does stay there? So talk a little bit about routine activities that an older relative might be involved with on a daily basis that need attention. So I think the important point to focus is what activities are important or meaningful to them. So, of course, you have the medical appointments, the food shopping, and so on. But what about the social activities, such as going to the senior centre or meeting with a particular friend? And any hobbies they may have, such as reading, going out for walks, or going to a favourite restaurant. So some of these activities may have become difficult for them to continue doing. So whatever you can do to help them to continue enjoying these activities is so important. So for example, find out what restaurant they love and take them there. Or find out if they need an eye exam to get better glasses so that they can read more easily. Thank you. So we've covered now the, the issues that need to be addressed and uh, 
if a, a caregiver or a potential caregiver has that in mind, let's start talking about the types of community agencies that the older relative, um, especially if they are going to stay in their home, where can you get these kind of supportive services? What, what, how can the caregiver find these these different agencies? Yeah, so there, there are many different options, as I alluded to earlier, such as senior centers, councils on aging, and ASAPs, the Aging Service Access Points, um, as well as nonprofit organizations. I think the easiest thing for, for many people is to call their senior center and ask for guidance. The senior center will know which of these different options is the best place to reach out to, uh, to inquire about getting supportive services. So, for example, if you were to call the senior center, they may say, well, we recommend that you reach out to the ASAP. And they will then provide you the phone number. And the ASAP is certainly... Um, a setting that provides a very extensive array of services. Also, it's worth noting that different the different states, uh, unfortunately, they have different names. So, for example, some states call it uh, an ASAP. Others might call it a triple A, an area agency on aging. Also, even within the same state, you have certain towns where they refer to a council on aging and other towns that refer to uh, the the place as a senior center. So it's certainly not surprising that, uh, that a lot of people in the very beginning when they're trying to find out information get very confused. But basically, you can't go wrong with a uh, whatever place you choose to call, people are always very helpful and very willing to guide you to another um, place if that is is something that can meet your needs uh, more effectively. Well, and and thank you for mentioning the area agencies on aging. As it turns out, two weeks ago on February fourteenth on Aging Matters, I did interview two representatives from the Arlington Area Agency on Aging. And um, uh, Rachel Coates and uh, Helen King not only talked about what is available here in Arlington, Virginia, but you're exactly right. The agencies on aging are all over the country, and she gave some uh, good resources for people to, to look up. And so I would urge listeners who are trying to find the right agency to be sure and listen to that program, which is on the podcast, and to learn more, especially if they're in other parts of the country or even where you are, uh, Julie, in Massachusetts. So uh, that's that's very helpful. I wanted to turn to support of the caregivers because I think we've been talking so much about caregiving for the older adult relative, but give us some more information about why caregivers need support and what resources and programs are available for them? So it is so critical for caregivers to get support. And this is especially true for those who may be caring full time. Many caregivers experience uh, burnout, and that is when they get so little time for themselves that they no longer take care of their own 
physical and emotional needs. And what I always stress to caregivers is that they need to get as much help as possible, whether it be paid or unpaid help, so that they can get a break. And ultimately, if they burn out, they may run the risk of not being able to provide the care for their loved one. So this is why it's so important. And there are different avenues for help, some which cost money, including home health aids, adult daycare, or even a nursing home, whereby the loved one can go and stay for some days or weeks to give the caregiver a break. And there are also uh, free avenues, including reaching out to friends or neighbors who are willing to come and sit with your loved one while you go off and tend to your own needs. And very importantly, there are caregiver support groups, some which are free and others which you pay for. And through the caregiver support groups that I have run, I, um, have, I have found that these groups really provide tremendous practical and emotional support uh, to the members in the groups. And so the, I've now been running a caregiver support group for over a year. We meet once a week for an hour and a half. And to see the emotional support that these caregivers can give to each other is so heartwarming. And what's so powerful about these groups is these caregivers really understand each other. They know that they're going through the same uh, challenges and they know that it's okay to express the frustration, the anger, the resentment that some of them feel about being put in this situation. And that's okay to bring up in, in these uh, groups. So certainly I would recommend caregiver support groups as well. And are there resources on the internet where people can, again, if they're in different parts of the country, that they can learn more about these caregiver support groups? Generally, senior centers will provide caregiver support groups. Um, also, just by doing a simple internet search. The challenge that I have come across in the years that I've been doing caregiver support groups is being able to meet the needs of those who are still working. Because the time frame that I do my caregiver support groups that I actually do th through the Acton Senior Center up here in Massachusetts, I provide it during the daytime. And unfortunately, of course, for caregivers who are also working, that can be tricky. And in those, in those cases, I always try and encourage working caregivers to reach out to their employer or their HR and ask if they provide caregiver support groups. And if not, to make the ask, ask the HR to start this up because it can really support people as they're dealing with the multiple challenges of work and family and caregiving. Okay, well, and we're getting close to the end, but I just wanted to uh, get your advice, Julie, about a couple possibilities in terms of financing and helping uh, caregivers. Can you talk um, briefly about long-term care insurance? And is there anything just briefly uh, in terms of Medicare that folks uh, should know? So it's really important to find out, does your loved one have long-term care insurance? 
And it always amazes me how many cases the family members of, let's say, an um, an older parent have no clue. And the benefit of long-term care insurance is that it covers uh, any long-term care services that this individual may need. And what, unfortunately, many families uh, don't realize is that Medicare does not cover long-term care. And this can be a rude awakening for many families. And they realize that they're faced with having to pay for these long-term care options, such as whether it be nursing home, whether it be assisted living, whether it be a home health aid, they will have to pay out of pocket. Or if they have long-term care insurance, then that will cover for much of these costs. But of course, long-term care insurance costs money. I have talked to many long-term care insurance brokers and they really recommend the sweet spot for people to sign up for long-term care insurance is ideally, obviously, before you start developing major medical issues. So generally, anytime between 45 and 60. Um, and in that case, you can get sign on uh, to a long-term care insurance without it being too expensive. Also, unfortunately, if there is any sign of dementia, you know you cannot get long-term care insurance. You will not get a carrier to take you on. Okay. Well, final question. How can listeners learn more about planning to be a caregiver? What, what do they need to know? There are many different ways that listeners can learn about caregiving, including going to the internet, reaching out to the senior center or council on aging. I have found some people will have conversations with their parents' healthcare providers. Yet despite the many uh, avenues, I found that many people find it to be a very piecemeal experience when trying to gather information. And that's why I've developed a comprehensive webinar on planning for caregiving, where I provide an overview of all the factors that families should uh, consider when uh, planning for caregiving, such as how to evaluate the situation as we talked about earlier on, um, as well as what the conversation should consist of, what topics to to cover, and how to set up the plan collaboratively with your, uh, not only with your loved one, but also with family members. And then finally, I discuss uh, the array of services and resources available in the community for older adults. And then another uh, webinar that I've now started up uh, is focusing on the emotional well-being of caregivers, because that is really such a critical area. And if you want to ask me more about uh, these services, please, I would love for you to visit my website. It's called Help My Aging Parents at www.helpmyagingparents.net. And I also would welcome any emails, uh, any questions you may have at julie at helpmyagingparents.net. Or please feel free to call me at my number, which is 978-505-2468. But please know that there is a lot that can be done to proactively start planning for caregiving.
Well said. And on that note, I want to thank Dr. Julie Nordstrom, adjunct professor at Regis College and founder of Help My Aging Parents, for joining me today. Thank you, Julie, for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. I so enjoyed this. Okay. Well, for folks who want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content, in addition to logging on to the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. 